Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter, the third chapter, that is where we will be momentarily as we get ready for something that has been on the uh, disabled list for the last several months, and that is our Sunday night Q&A. You know, COVID-19 really just threw a wrench in, uh, I mean, just a lot of things this past year. And for preachers like yours truly, it meant just an absolute disruption to my preaching schedule and the things that I try to, to map out over the course of a year and the things that we want to talk about. And unfortunately, what that meant is that meant having to kind of just push to the side our monthly Q&A sermons. And that's okay, but in an attempt to try and uh, return to some measure of... Okay, well, maybe we're not going to have slides this evening because <laughs> I've either got the wrong uh, slides up or I just placed them in the wrong place. Click through those and see if it shows up after this song. I'll keep talking. Don't pay attention to what's going on up there. Uh, if you've never been here before for uh, Q&A night, uh, maybe I ought to just give you kind of a brief uh, kind of primer for what it is that we are doing during this particular part uh, of our worship and this particular kind of sermon. It is a little bit different kind of sermon. And one of the things that makes it different is just kind of the format of it all. And maybe the best way for me to just even explain what Q&A night is is to actually... Is to actually Man, how did those questions get all the way back there at the end? Okay, we'll get to those eventually. Uh, is to just look at Romans chapter 4 and in verse 3 because there the Apostle Paul, he's dealing with some questions about uh, Abraham and about justification and how do you know that Abraham was justified. And in Romans 4 and in verse 3, Paul just simply says, What does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say about that? And the point there is, is hey, if you got a Bible question... The way to get an answer is to just go to the Bible. Let the Bible do the explaining. Let the Bible uh, answer for itself. And this evening, that's exactly what we want to do. We've got a couple of questions this evening that have been submitted to me by different folks. And we want to just go to the Scriptures to hear what the Word of God has to say about them. And this evening, the two questions that I have, kind of the unifying theme in both of them, is that both these questions deal with non-Christians and have to do with our, our relations and our dealings with non-Christians and how we respond to non-Christians. I actually had a third question that I thought about including, but I decided I'll table that and save that for another occasion. Uh, but we do want to think about these two questions. I think these are two really good questions for us to work with tonight. And so that does begin in First Peter, the third chapter. Read with me, if you will. In verse number 12, Peter here is actually quoting from the Psalms, and he says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This first question has to do with prayer. And it came from a conversation that I had with a brother when I was preaching in a meeting last year. And I've actually heard this question kind of phrased and framed in a couple of different ways. But the question is this. The question is, since we know that God cannot hear the prayers of sinners, what do you do whenever a non-Christian says that they're praying for you? You know, here you are, maybe you're... You're sick, dealing with illness within you and your family, or maybe you've lost a loved one, or you're going through some other kind of a tough time. And someone who is not a Christian, they, they come to you and tell you, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you. Or maybe they send you a card and it says something to that effect. Or maybe they post on your Facebook and say, hey, prayers are being sent up for you. I'm praying for you. Well, well what do you do about that? 
Maybe kind of closely related to this is another question that I've heard asked before, and that is, what do you do when you're at a, at a family gathering or at a work function and you're going to eat a meal and somebody gets up to lead the prayer before the meal and that person, that person's not a Christian. Maybe they go to some denominational church and they think that they're a Christian. What, what do you do in that moment? Now, of course, that kind of question, it comes because of passages like 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 12. Because you read that verse and it kind of sounds like God does not hear the prayers of sinners. And you should know this is not the only verse in the Bible that says something similar to that. You could add to that list John 9, 31, Isaiah 59 and in verse 2, Proverbs 29 and in verse 8, or excuse me, Proverbs 28 and in verse 9, and just a whole host of others, all of which give the impression that the prayers of people who are not in covenant relationship with God, their prayers just don't accomplish anything. Their prayers fall on deaf ears. Their prayers don't do any good. God doesn't hear them. But i got to tell you, as soon as you just put those words out of your mouth, as soon as you start saying things like, God doesn't hear, oh, hold on now. That ought to give us pause. And that ought to cause us to look at that a little bit more closely and maybe even be a little bit more careful with what we're saying. And so this evening, let me just give you three big ideas that I think ought to help us whenever we encounter these kinds of situations and how we we work through that. First and foremost, you need to just understand that God, God hears everything. There just isn't anything that happens here on planet Earth that God says, whoa, what was that? I think something happened, but, but I couldn't hear it. I didn't hear what that guy was saying. I don't hear what's going on down there. No, God hears everything. Let me just put some Bible under that. While we're here in Peter, just turn over to 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3, look in verse 20. In 1 John the third chapter and in verse 20, there John says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. God knows everything. Everything that you think, everything that you do, and yes... Everything that you say, God knows about it. And before somebody looks at that verse and says, well, Josh, that's, that's talking to Christians. That's talking about, I mean, it's, 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 it's written to Christians, so that must be about Christians. Well, let me add to that what's said in Hebrews, in Hebrews the fourth chapter. In Hebrews chapter 4, I want you to notice God's omniscience over all of creation. God's not just omniscient over Christians. He's omniscient over everything. In Hebrews chapter 4, look in verse 13. There the writer says, no creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Nothing that anyone says or does on this earth or even nothing that anyone thinks on this earth is hidden from God. He hears, He sees, and He knows it all. There are, we could add to this, there are a number of the places in the Psalms that laud and and praise God for His infinite knowledge. Psalm 147 is one of those places. Again and again, the Bible affirms the omniscience of God. And so we need to start right here because we just need to get this settled right here in our minds and in our vocabulary. That God hears every prayer. God has never seen a sinner praying down on planet earth and their mouth was moving and obviously some words were coming out but God was like, I can't hear that guy. 
I mean, I'm not real good at lip reading. Somebody help me out here. Somebody help me. What's that guy trying to say? No, that has never happened. God is aware of everything. God hears everything. And that means then that we want to be very careful with making just big blanket statements like, God doesn't hear sinners. Okay, I I understand where we're probably coming from when we say that. But without giving some kind of a qualifier in there, that probably is going to be very misleading. It might cause some people to have some misunderstandings. Because God is cognizant and He is aware of all things, which means if a person who is not a Christian, if they are praying, God knows about it. And God hears what he or she is saying. Now somebody's going to say in response to that, well, Josh, what... What about all those verses? What about that verse we started with in 1 Peter chapter 3? What about all those other verses that you cited? Where it says, I mean, it almost sounds like it says pretty clearly, God doesn't hear sinners. What's up with that? Well, I believe what we have with those verses is we have the teaching that God is not obligated to respond to the prayers of those who are not in covenant relationship with Him. God is not obligated to answer and respond to those prayers. Since we've already looked at 1 Peter 3, verse 12, let's grab another one that's very similar. Look in Proverbs 15. In Proverbs chapter 15, notice what the wise man says there in verse 29. In Proverbs 15 and in verse 29, there Solomon says, Proverbs 15, 29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayers of the righteous. What I believe verses like this are saying is that the wicked... They have no right to call upon God with any kind of expectation that they will receive anything in response. The righteous, as the text goes on to say there in the second half of the verse, the righteous, they do have that expectation. They do have that promise. In fact, that's really one of the blessings of being a Christian, isn't it? That we know, we have God's guarantee that He receives and He responds to the prayers of His children. But people who are outside of Christ, they have no such promise or assurance. This is kind of like when a parent says to their three-year-old, I can't hear you when you're whining. What's that mean? Does that mean that that parent cannot hear the the vibrations of the whining entering into their ear canal and the annoying sounds that that creates within the eardrum? Is that what that means? No. No, what that means is is that means when you have that whiny tone, when you are having a whiny attitude, when a whiny complaint is being muttered, I'm not going to respond to you. Yes, I hear it physically. I know what it is that you're doing, but I'm not going to respond to that as long as you continue in that whiny disposition. And in a similar way, God has made it clear in Scripture that He is not obligated to respond to someone who is not trying to serve Him, someone who has no measure of relationship with Him, Someone who maybe is just trying to use prayer as rubbing the genie in the lamp. Those individuals have no guarantee that God will respond to their prayers. Having said that though, this third principle is important. And that is that God has responded to the prayers of sinners before. And we know that because the Bible shows us examples of that. There are a number of places in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, where God has heard and He has responded to the prayers of what we would call sinners. P. 
people who are outside of covenant relationship with Him. And the reason God does that is because, is because He's God. God can do what God wants to do. And so, for example, the people in Nineveh in the days of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 3, those people were not righteous. They were not serving God. They were wicked. The text in Jonah goes out of its way to describe how wicked and barbaric those people were. But they heard the word of the Lord, and so they cried out to God. Jonah chapter 3 and in verse 8, and by verse 10, God is hearing and responding and answering their prayers. Maybe the classic example of that would be in Acts the 10th chapter. Would you turn to Acts chapter 10? We'll be getting to this very soon in our Wednesday night Bible class. We've already covered it now in the high school class. In Acts chapter 10, there we read about this fellow by the name of Cornelius. And let's just be clear right up front. This guy is not a Christian. He's not. He's not in a right relationship with God. And in fact, the whole reason that Peter comes to his house is to help him become a Christian. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Acts 10, verse 1, as we're told about this man, Cornelius, he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man. He feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people. And notice this. He prayed continually to God. So here's a man who is outside of Christ. He's not a Christian, but he's praying. The question is, did that praying do any good? Or was that just falling on deaf ears? God isn't going to hear him because he's outside of Christ. Acts chapter 10 verse 31. Peter said to him, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Peter shows up and Peter says, Cornelius, God's heard your prayers. And in fact, that's the reason that I am here today. I'll say it again. God gets to do what God wants to do. And so if a sinner is calling out to God and is begging Him for mercy, and God sees that sinner's heart, that they are genuine, that they are sincere, they are begging Him to find the truth and they're seeking after that, God may well choose to respond to that positively. In fact, God might even answer other prayers of those same sinners. He might do that so that he might help that person to make progress toward him. Which means at the end of the day, you and I, we just need to let the Lord be the Lord. And we'll let him decide what prayers he responds to and how he does that and all the mechanics of that. And that means as well that we don't need to be thrown off by passages that say things like, his ear is shut or he will not hear. Because we've already seen, those are not blanket truths for every single sinner, in every single situation, in every single time. God is not bound to answer any sinner's prayer. But He might, because He's God. He's done it before. He may choose to do that again. And so, with those three principles well in mind, to get loop right back to the original question, what do you do when someone who is a non-Christian or someone who maybe they, they think that they're a Christian, but they're actually not a Christian. They come to you and they say, hey, I'm praying for you. We, me and my family, we, we've been praying for all of you all. You're going to be in my prayers. What should you do? You should say thank you. That's what you should do. You should say thank you. Thank them for doing that. That person is not trying to be mean to you. 
They believe that what they are doing and what they are extending to you, that, that that's a kindness. And you know what? It is a kindness. It's a good thing. It's an important thing. They are doing what they think is, is proper in that moment. And so we need to treat that with dignity and with grace. Be grateful. Somebody cares enough about you to think of you and to want to go to God on your behalf, even if they aren't a Christian. Because for all we know, God may choose to respond and answer the prayer of that sinner. He's done it before. He may well do it again. Let's turn our attention now to this second question, a little bit different, but it does still involve thinking about someone who is outside of Christ, someone who is not a Christian. Uh, this question was sent to me by someone last year who had been watching our uh, sermon broadcasts on YouTube. And this was after I had preached a lesson back in June, I think, about baptism. And so they had this kind of a, a follow-up, a thought that was in their mind, and they asked it. And I appreciate them being willing to ask this question. They asked, if a person accepts Christ in their life, but that person is sick and they're dying, and they're physically unable to be immersed, would pouring count as baptism? Now, I, I certainly don't want you to be dismissive of that question. I think it's a valid question. Because that is the kind of thing that people do think about. And I think people think about that very seriously, and they think about that with a very honest heart. And I want to treat it tonight as being a, a fair and honest question. In fact, there's even a school of thought that traces pouring as a form of baptism and it all stems from this kind of, of hypothetical question like this. And I'm going to refer to this as a hypothetical, but, but the truth is there are people who maybe do fall into that category. Maybe you've even known people who seem to somewhat maybe fit this particular scenario. And so here's somebody who's, who's really, really ill. They might be on their deathbed. Maybe they've got cancer, and cancer has just ravaged their body from head to toe. But they're able to, to talk and to communicate, and they make it known that, that I want to be in a right relationship with God. I want to obey the Lord. I want to do what He says. But physically, they're not in any condition to be immersed. In fact, they maybe got doctors saying, nope, not going to do that, can't be doing that. Well, what do we say about that? What do we say about this idea that, all right, well, if we just poured some water on them, would that be a feasible substitute? Well, I think there's just a number of things that really come together to help us understand God's will in matters like this. And that all just kind of begins, and I hate to be picking apart the question, but I do need to do that. That all begins by just pointing out that there is some trouble right there at the beginning of the question. Accepts Christ. And I want you to notice that the questioner has the idea of accepting Christ as being something that is separate from baptism. What I would want to know, first of all, is how does one accept Christ into their life separate from baptism? Because biblically, the way that you accept Christ is by being baptized. That's how you do that according to the Scriptures. You cannot accept Christ without being baptized. In fact, I want to show you that. Look in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3... Paul here, he, he talks about uh, one of the things that baptism does. There's lots of things that baptism does, but here's one of the things that it does. In Galatians 3, look in verse 27. In Galatians 3 and in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
How do you accept Christ? How do you put on Christ? Well, Paul says you are baptized into Him. Do you see how there is no accepting without baptizing? Those two things have to go together. Baptism is the means, it is the mechanism by which a person goes about accepting Jesus Christ. And so what we're talking about really in this hypothetical sort of question is not someone who has accepted. No, really what we're talking about is someone who wants to accept Jesus. Look in John the first chapter. In John chapter 1... This is a very helpful thing that John records at the outset of his gospel. When a person has faith in Christ, I'm afraid that all too often what they are told and what they are led to believe is that, well, having faith in Christ, that's the same thing as accepting Christ into your life. That that, that equates to accepting Jesus as your Savior and being saved. But John seems to teach differently. Look at the point that John makes in John chapter 1 and in verse 12. John 1 and in verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, somebody who's got faith, He gave them the right to become children of God. Do you see there? When you have faith in Christ, that doesn't mean that you've already accepted Christ or that you are now saved, or that you are now a Christian. What it does mean, though, is that you now have the right, the opportunity to become a child of God. Faith is what opens up the door for you to be able to do all of the other things that are necessary for a person to become a Christian. But I'm going to say once more, you don't become a Christian without baptism. In fact, look with me in Acts the second chapter. I don't think that that could be made any clearer than in Acts chapter 2. You know, can you imagine somebody becoming a Christian but still being in their sins? Absolutely not. If you're a Christian, well, that means you've been forgiven of your sins. Well, that's exactly what would happen, though, if you remove baptism from the equation. You'd have somebody who is, or at least they think they're a Christian, but they're still in their sins. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38, Peter told those people on the day of Pentecost, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. I want you to please notice that Peter did not tell all those people on Pentecost that what you just simply need to do is you need to raise your hand and you need to pray this little prayer and you just accept Jesus into your heart. No, the first time the gospel was preached... And every time thereafter, folks were told that if they wanted to accept Christ, if they wanted to be saved, if they wanted to be forgiven of their sins, then that means they needed to be baptized. And so in many ways, the question is not, here's somebody who's accepted Jesus, now what are they going to do because of their physical condition? No, really, we need to rephrase the question because the question ought to be, How can this person accept Jesus if they are too sick, if they are too physically impaired to be immersed? And I would offer just a couple of ideas in that direction. And the very first of those is maybe the most blunt. And that is, I just need to say, we can't change what the Bible says. I'm not in any position. You're not in any position. No one is in any position to change what the Bible teaches about salvation. 
The Bible says that baptism is immersion. And I certainly don't want to just assume that everybody who hears this lesson just automatically knows that. I need to show you that in the Bible. Look in Romans 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul here, he, he's talking about uh, the purpose of baptism. That's probably the main point that he's making. But as he's making that point, he also makes a point about the mode, the proper mode of baptism. In, in Revelation, excuse me, Matthew, Revelation, Romans chapter 6. You'd think I'd have more Romans on the mind. In Romans 6 and in verse 4, Paul says, We were buried therefore, buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says that baptism is a burial. And there's only one kind of baptism that fits that definition. And that would be immersion. Pouring, sprinkling, or anything else isn't going to fit the definition. This past Wednesday night when we were in Acts chapter 8, just kind of add this to the list of other passages that speak about baptism as being in immersion. In Acts chapter 8 and in verse 38, as we read there about the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, the text says there that both he and Philip went down into the water. What's that describing? Is that describing pouring? No. It's describing an immersion, being plunged in and under the water. And then the text goes on to say that they both came up out of the water. Now, with that understanding, and that's just two verses. We could cite several others, but I think it's more than enough. With that firmly in front of us, what the Bible says about what constitutes baptism, my question is, by what authority would I or anyone else have to tell someone, you know what? I'm going to make an exception for you in your case. You know, your situation is very unique, and your situation is such that, that you don't have to do what Romans 6 says. You don't have to do what the Ethiopian man did in Acts chapter 8. I'm going to do something different for you, and then I'm going to tell you that that's okay. Whoa! Where, where's that come from? Who would give anyone the right to say or do such a thing? God is very capable of saying thus and so, and thus and so, except in this instance. God is very capable of doing that if He wanted to. In fact, there are places in Scripture where God does spell out certain exceptions for things, that this is how this is going to work in this situation, and this is how this is going to work in this particular situation. But I must tell you this evening that I am not aware of any exception in all of the Word of God, but more specifically in the New Testament, for baptism by immersion as being anything except baptism by immersion. How then could I ever presume to speak for God and go to someone and tell them something that would be terribly misleading by saying to them, oh, we, we don't really need to do what Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, but what we're going to do, it'll end up being okay in your instance. Says who? Who gets to make that call? I'm not. I don't think any of us would be so bold as to make that call. Which will let me secondly to just say as well that hypothetical scenarios like this, even if they are rooted in maybe some real life you know, example that you know of in your life, those hypotheticals do not change the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, I want to be clear right here. I, I don't want to presume that the person who sent me this question is necessarily trying to get out of immersion. 
But it does seem that many times when you have these kinds of conversations with folks, that does seem to be kind of what the end game is, isn't it? You're talking with folks, talking to them about baptism and about the essentiality of that for salvation. And they start bringing up hypothetical cases just like this. And they kind of bring these up in an attempt to discredit what the Bible is saying in those places. That you know, hey, since baptism seemingly can't be applied in this person's case, this person just is incapable of being immersed, then well, what that means is that, that means that baptism really isn't necessary for anybody. Can you imagine applying that line of logic in other facets of life? What if you got pulled over for running a red light and when the officer comes up to your window and says, hey, what are you doing? You, you, you ran a red light back there. I mean, it's clear as day. What in the world were you thinking? And you then tried to explain to that officer, well, officer, you know, about five minutes ago, I saw a big white and red van that had flashing lights on it and it was making siren sounds and they flew right through a red light themselves. And when I saw them do that, I said to myself, well, I'm going to do that too. They have the right to do that. I have the right to do that. Listen, the fact that exceptions at red lights are made for ambulances, that does not mean that there is an exception for you and I. And so even if I could somehow prove that God makes exceptions for sick and infirm people, how does that have any bearing at all on someone who is normal and healthy and physically capable, who has absolutely no reason not to submit and not to obey God's clear command in the waters of baptism? What's that hypothetical got to do with, I don't know, 99.999% of the rest of the population? doesn't have anything to do. And that, of course, would cover as well all of those other hypotheticals that get thrown out in this particular kind of situation. You've heard before about, well, well, what about the guy in the desert? And he's in the desert and he wants to become a Christian and there's no water to be found. What about that guy? Or what about the guy who, he's on his way to be baptized. He jumps in his car and he's going to go meet the preacher down at the river or down at the, the baptistry and on the way there, bang, a tree slams down on the top of his car, crushes his skull and he dies. What about that? You know what my answer to those questions is? My answer is, you're not in the desert. My answer is, you're not being clubbered over the head with a big tree. Do what God tells you to do. It's clear, it's plain, obey His will. And the fact of the matter is, I could play the hypothetical game just as well as anybody else. You know, if you're talking to somebody who has any belief at all that you need to do, you know, anything in order to be saved, so, for example, the, the person who believes that, well, you just need to accept Christ into your heart. You just, you just believe Him in your heart. You prayed to God and asked for forgiveness. Well, well, i got a hypothetical for you. What if that guy is in the process of accepting Christ into his heart? He's in the process of praying that prayer, but right in the middle of it, he has a heart attack and he dies. What then? You see, I can play that game just as good as anybody else. And the point is, hypotheticals prove nothing. What the Bible consistently teaches us is that we just need to do what God tells us to do. Quit trying to play games. Quit trying to work within the uh, parameters of the system and try to find loopholes here and there. i, I got to tell you, I would hope somebody would ask, all right, well, Josh, well, well, what about this situation? Maybe somebody right now 
is thinking of somebody who's in that circumstance. They're laying in a hospital bed somewhere. And maybe they have come to that, that moment, that seminal moment where they realize, I, I need to be saved. And I need to do it the way that the Bible says. I need to be baptized, but I, I can't. And my mind's still working pretty good, but physically I, I can't get out of this bed. Especially i got doctors over here telling me, if you get out of that bed and you go try to get into a baptistry, you're probably going to die. I tell you this, I mentioned Abraham this morning. I would surely hope that if God told me to sacrifice my child, I would hope that I would just do what God said and then let him take care of the rest. In fact, that's what Abraham was planning to do. Abraham had assurance that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead even if he did follow through with it. And you know what? Even if a thousand doctors told me that I can't be baptized and they're blocking and trying to stop me from doing that, what I would hope is I would hope that I would have the courage and physically I would hope that I would have the strength to go through with it and do it anyway. And if by chance I did happen to die while trying to obey the Lord, is there any better way to die than trying to obey the Lord? I'd like to think that'd be a pretty good way to go. And like I said a second ago, I just let God sort out all the rest. You're not going to get your way out of baptism. You're not going to work your way out through manipulation and all kinds of word games and all kinds of clever maneuvering to somehow work baptism as immersion out of the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. And what you and I simply need to do is we simply need to just be humble enough to accept that and then just do that. And it seems to me that that does make for an opportune moment, an opportune spot for us to extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ. I'll let you try to back it up and get it to faithful love. We're going to sing in just a moment that song out of the supplement, number 78, Faithful Love. And it is the faithful love of Jesus that makes it possible, gives us the opportunity to be united with Christ in baptism so that we can then be added to the family of God. That's what it means to accept Christ and then to be a Christian. Begin serving the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's somebody here this evening who's of an age of accountability and you've just, you've just yet to do that. You know that it's right. You know you need to do it, but you're just sitting on the dime. Get off the dime. Tonight's the night to render your full obedience, not partial obedience. Well, I, I believe in Jesus and I even tell folks that I believe in Jesus. That's good. Let's take it all the way. The Lord wants complete obedience. Let's complete that tonight. Seal that in the waters of baptism. If you are a Christian, but you've not been living like one, you've not been living by, like somebody who's been baptized and forgiven of their sins, then brother or sister, you need to repent of that. You need to ask God for forgiveness if we can assist you in that prayer and encourage you to serve the Lord in a better way from this day forward. We stand ready to do that as well. Whatever your need may be to serve Jesus, we want to help you to do just that. Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.